Brothers and sisters, I'd ask that you turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from Revelation chapter 16, as we will be looking at verses 12 to 21. So, Revelation chapter 16, verses 12 to 21. Revelation chapter 16, verses 12 to 21. Please, then, brothers and sisters, hear with me the reading of God's Word. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on that great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at that place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out from the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstorms, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Thus far, brothers and sisters, is the reading of God's Word. Now, if the book of Revelation has shown to us anything, it has shown to us that the earth is not all that there is for God's people. The earthly life of the saints is not the the end-all and the be-all, is it? In fact, if it was, it would be incredibly sad. Because these visions that we continually see show a, a people and a church that deals with suffering during our earthly existence. We are a church at war. We are a church at battle. We are a church that is being attacked. We are a church that is being assailed. We are a church that the world is gathering against to do battle. These visions often depict then what can be to some what looks like a bleak world. And to many, to those who, who look upon this world with their eyes, actually see that very thing. Right? It looks like the, like the world is winning and the church is losing. I actually think that many people who profess faith in Christ have been swept away because of this. Right? That they perceive that to be the reality. The, the world is winning, the church is losing. And nobody wants to be on the losing side, do they? No, they don't. And so many Christians... And even many uh, Christian churches, or that churches that would call themselves those things, 
see the, the pendulum shift to the world. And so Christians and churches that bear the name Christians likewise shift with the pendulum. Right? They see the tide turn and they say to themselves, if, if we want relevance in the world, if we want a voice in the world, if we want legitimacy in the world, if we want to be on the winning side of things, then we need to shift with the times. And so those who once held to classic Christian doctrine, like that marriage was ordained to be between one man and one woman, now say, well, what does it matter so long as any two people love each other? Right? They are those who, who once held to the, the fact that God created them male and female. And now these are folks who would say, well, it's okay to affirm those who don't believe that they fall under one of those two gender categories. Right? Those who once held to the exclusivity of Christ and salvation are those who now say or now open the door for other ways to find salvation for people. Right? These are folks who once held to the doctrine of hell, but now say, well, God would never send someone to hell. And perhaps they even abandon the doctrine of hell altogether. Right? They are these people who likewise once held to the inspiration of Scripture, but who now say, well, the Scriptures ultimately only written by man, and so we can kind of pick and choose what it is we'd like to follow and what we ought to toss out. And they do this so that they can stand on what they think will be the winning side. But brothers and sisters, let us see that that is a, a catastrophic error. It is a, a catastrophically bad decision. For what they perceive now as the church losing is not losing at, a, at all. It appears losing to some because they only see with their natural eyes. And so they do not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they can't understand them for they are spiritually discerned. But for those brothers and sisters with spiritual eyes, we can see what's going on all around us. Right? We see everything that is occurring is occurring according to the definite and the eternal plan of God. Rome and the Jews They thought that they had won, didn't they, when they crucified our Savior? And to the eyes of the world, it appeared that they had won, didn't it? But I want us to see that what appeared as our losing to the world, in fact, was the greatest victory that the church has ever experienced. Because it was upon the cross that Christ defeated sin and death and the devil and the world. It was also there that He has secured for us that latter-day eschatological victory when Christ returns and that great reversal occurs and all things will be restored. And this is something that both naturalized and spiritualized will all see. I want us to understand, brothers and sisters, that the, the Lord does not tarry. That the Lord will not go on for long allowing the ungodly world to revel in their perceived victory. He will not let the proud and the haughty continue to boast in their sin for too much longer. He will not let the wicked rulers and peoples of the world continue to afflict His people. There is a coming a time in which He will reveal Himself in a stupendous way and He will right all things. This is what God's people in every single generation have been able to look to with hope. This is why, brothers and sisters, although... We are afflicted and persecuted. We don't walk around with our heads down dejected. 
Right? We don't walk around feeling defeated, although we may be marginalized by society. We don't walk around with fear and distress and worry and anxiety and uncertainty. For we know what? Right? Revelation has taught us that it is Christ who reigns. Right? We know that. Christ is reigning right now. And He looks down upon the earth and He laughs at our enemies. Right? He laughs at them as they think that they can control the progress of human history. But we, brothers and sisters, know that in fact it is Jesus Christ who holds the scroll. And it is Jesus Christ who is bringing human history towards its goal, which is His triumphant return. Right? He is awaiting that perfect time when He will come in glory. When He will come with vengeance and He will speak wrath to the peoples of this world. And at that time, He will bring to completion the salvation of His people. And at that time, the victory that was won on the cross will be seen by every eye. And whether willingly or unwillingly, all will be made to acknowledge it. For the believer it shall be to our delight. For the unbeliever it shall be to their dismay. And it's this final return in our text that we see. The sixth bowl now leads up to, and which the seventh bowl covers. All of which is depicted to us in our text through this Old Testament imagery, which is going to help us to understand the meaning of our text, although these may be somewhat unusual pictures. And so one of the first things that we want to take note of then is this great battle that our text describes, where the rulers of the earth come together in order to destroy and to eradicate God's people. And so point one we'll call composing an army for battle. Okay, point one, composing an army for battle. Please look with me then starting at verse 12 once more. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on that great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out from the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So we see here that the, the sixth angel does what? Immediately he pours out his bowl, and where does he pour it on? The river Euphrates. Now, we need to understand that the river Euphrates holds great significance, especially in the Old Testament, uh, for a variety of reasons. First is that the Euphrates was a, the eastern boundary of the land that God had promised Abram in his covenant dealings with him in Genesis 15. In verse 8, there we read this, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Second, the Euphrates then came to be known or identified in the Old Testament with the regions of the north and the east from which Assyria and Babylon had come to capture Israel and Judah. And in fact, later on, the prophets will declare that God will dry up the river Euphrates, allowing enemy nations to come in and to actually destroy Babylon, freeing God's people to serve Him once more. And Scripture records the, uh, excuse me, Scripture records the fulfillment of that prophecy. 
In Isaiah chapter 44, verses 27 and 28, we are told this. Who says to the deep, be dry? I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Later in Isaiah 45, verse 13, we further read this, I have stirred him up, that is Cyrus, in righteousness, and I will make his ways level. He shall build my city, and he shall set my exiles free. And Scripture records, for Cyrus did exactly that, didn't he? He defeated Babylon, and he set the exiles free, allowing them to go back to Jerusalem. And so, what do we see here? We see through the readings of these texts that in God's gracious acts, oftentimes in delivering His people, what does He do? He dries up water. He dries up water. And we see that elsewhere in Exodus 14.21, don't we? With the parting of the Red Sea. There we read, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. So these events, especially the destruction of Babylon then, we need to see are a foreshadowing of that latter day destruction of Babylon and the salvation or the deliverance the redemption of the latter-day people of God. Now, just as Babylon is symbolic in the book of Revelation, so too is the river Euphrates. Right? The river Euphrates was a boundary, remember, that God had made with Israel to keep their enemies at bay. And so, when we read about the river Euphrates being dried up, what we need to see it symbolize is the removal of God's restraint of the enemy nations of His people, so that now they may gather together and form an army to battle God's people. That is what the drying up of the river Euphrates now symbolizes. That protection that we have has been removed. That restraint has been removed. And now what happens? Satan sees it is now the the perfect time. This is the, the perfect opportunity to gather the nations against God's saints to destroy the church. And Satan is able to gather them through what? He gathers them through deception. Through deception. Here we have recorded for us that false and unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet in verse 13, don't we? And what do the three of them do? They, they serve Satan's agenda. They serve it politically and they serve it religiously. Remember back from chapter 13, it was the the second beast or the false prophet whose very purpose was to do what? To point or redirect people's eyes to the first beast so that they might worship that beast. The second beast, the activity of that second beast, though we said, not only occurred outside of the church and in the world, but also in the church as well. Didn't we say that? I mean, that's why he's called a false prophet, isn't he? Right? Because he works also within the church. This is why Jesus in the Gospels will tell His disciples, beware of false prophets. Right? Because false prophets do what? They deceive. Right? They lead you away from the worship of Christ to the worship of other things. They lead you away from the worship of the one true God into idolatry. That's what these three unclean spirits that come from the mouth of the 
dragon and the beast and the false prophet do. They deceive. Now, it's these frogs that we read about that are an allusion back to Exodus chapter 8. And in particular, verses 2 to 14. If you remember, that is the second plague that God sends upon Israel. But what happened when God sent that frog plague against Israel? Well, that is one of two plagues that Pharaoh's magicians replicated, isn't it? And so as God sent the plague of frogs, the magicians reproduced that plague, appearing to make frogs fall in the land as well. How did they do that? They used what? Their deceptive magic. Their deceptive arts. Right? That's how they did it. So the purpose of the deception then is to gather all of the rulers, to gather all of these people together to war against God's people. Now we see that this war, this battle is going to be a, a worldwide war. It's going to be a worldwide event. We see that in verse 14. For we're told that the kings of the whole world assemble for battle. Remember though, this is symbolic language. Symbolic language. What is being addressed here is the same thing we read about in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 7. I remember there we read, and when they have finished their testimony, remember that's the two witnesses who are symbolic of the church. After they have finished their testimony, after the gospel, remember we said, has been proclaimed to the ends of the earth, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. But brothers and sisters, the fact that this happens on the great day of God the Almighty is indicative to us of how that day will turn out for them and for us. In fact, Joel tells us what that result will be. In Joel chapter 2, verse 13, we read this, The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. Who He who executes His word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Right? See, in our text today, we are given a glimpse of vision into God's perfect plan. Let us see how He is luring the world together into thinking that they shall win the day. But it all plays into the hand of God. Right? He has set them up for utter failure. They think the battle has been decided not knowing that God Almighty is using Satan to deceive them and to bring them together for their own destruction. That is what is occurring. This leads us into our second point that we want to look at this morning, which is point two, the coming like a thief. Coming like a thief. Please then look with me at verses 15 and 16 of our text. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now that language of, of coming like a thief is something I think we're all familiar with, right? We've heard that many times throughout the, the New Testament. And so I just want to point us to a couple examples of that. First, in Matthew chapter 24, in verses 42 to 44, Jesus says this, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. 
But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also stay ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3 says this, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. One final text to look at comes from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Here we read this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away. With a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will all be exposed. Here I think Peter is most clear that that identification with Christ as thief correlates to the return of Christ. When we read about Christ being thief in Matthew 24, in 2 Peter 3, and 1 Thessalonians 5, we need to see that is addressing the final advent and return of our Lord. Exactly what we say the 6th and 7th bulls are dealing with today. And then we have this exhortation. This exhortation that Jesus Himself gives here to His people. That He is coming like a thief in the night. But not only ought we see this to be an exhortation, we also ought to see this as a caution. This is a caution to God's people for you to be vigilant in the Christian life until the very end. It is a caution to us because what He is saying is, I am revealing to you that I am pouring out these bowls. That this judgment is being poured out upon the earth and I am not far behind. Now we need to see that when Jesus comes as thief, that He is not coming as thief in a negative way. He's not coming to to rob and to steal. He's coming as thief in the sense that He is coming unexpectedly. But who will it be unexpected for? Really the unbeliever. Why? Because they live in darkness. Their mind is darkened, their eyes are darkened, their heart is darkened. They are not expecting or anticipating the return of Christ. But for us, brothers and sisters, those who who live in the light, who have had our minds enlightened by the Holy Spirit, it shall not be a surprise to us. But just in case, just in case some of you here have been filled with the cares of the world or drawn away by temptation, which will bring you into spiritual sleepiness, Jesus warns you here today, do not be caught naked and exposed. Brothers and sisters, we all enjoy relaxation, don't we? You work hard at home. You work hard at the office. It's nice sometimes, isn't it, to just unwind and to relax. But the Lord's message to the saints today in our text is that we must never relax in the Christian life. Every single day and every moment of every day, we are to walk by faith in Christ. Right, every single day we are to rest in Christ for salvation. Right, every day we are to be living the Christian life. And so in that sense, brothers and sisters, there is no relaxation from our faith. Right, we are not to think that we can relax and join in the sin of the world. We are not to think, well, Christ isn't returning for some time. 
so I can get lost in the world. I can live carelessly in the world. I can neglect working out my salvation with fear and trembling. No, you must never think that. It never stops. Right? We are to remain watchful over our souls. And the way that you do this, Jesus says, is by keeping your garments on. Keeping your garments on. And how do we do that? How do we keep those garments on? Well, brothers and sisters, it's by resting in and trusting in and holding fast to the righteousness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Ultimately knowing that it is He who will keep you from spot and from stain in this world. We do that by trusting in Christ, knowing that He will not allow anyone to strip us of the garments of our salvation. Why is that? Well, because they're not ours to begin with, but rather they've been given to us by Christ because of what He has done. Right? And these are garments now that are clean, that are white because of His shedding of blood, which cleanses us from our former sin. It is His righteousness that now covers our nakedness and our shame. Shame and guilt that He took upon Himself on the cross and imputing to us His righteousness. Now, if we are to keep our garments on, what are we not to do, he says? We are not to be found naked and exposed. Now, what I want us to see here is that to be naked and exposed is not to be read here literally. But rather, this is figurative language. It's figurative. It describes those who are going to be put to shame when Christ returns for their rejection of His Son and for their idolatry. You see, in the Old Testament... On quite a few occasions, we are told that, that God will figuratively lift the skirt of His enemies. To do what? To, to show their nakedness. Just what? To show the shame of their sin to others. To make it known. Nahum chapter 3 verse 5 is one example. Here we read, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show your nakedness to the nations and your shame to the kingdoms. So brothers and sisters, as we consider our own lives this day, I ask that when Christ returns, will you be found clothed or naked? Will you be found clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Are you one who, who walks every day of your life with Christ and His Word near to you, close to your chest, so that you would not be deceived by the devil and drawn away by the false prophet into idolatry? Do you live your life every day before the ever-present eyes of God? Or do you proclaim with your mouth that you are a Christian, but are constantly being led away by the devil? Right? Are you right now naked and exposed, not being covered in Christ and His righteous garments? Brothers and sisters, we see here the great danger of being found naked and exposed. You do not want to be caught with your clothes off when Christ returns. Because however you are when Christ returns, whether naked or clothed, that will be how you will stand before Him at Judgment Day. And so you will either stand before Him in shame and your nakedness and exposed or you will stand before Him clothed in the righteous robes of Christ. You will stand before Him in the guilt of your own sin, or you will stand before Him 
freed from the guilt of your sin because of the atoning work of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, we see all of a sudden the text switches back, doesn't it? To the battlefield in verse 16. And we're told there that in Hebrew, this, this battlefield is called Armageddon. Now, in actuality, it is, it is Harmageddon. But when we translate into English, it gets translated Armageddon. But Harmageddon or Armageddon actually means mountain of Megiddo. Right? That's what Armageddon means. And like Babylon and Euphrates, we need to see that Armageddon isn't some specific location, but rather Armageddon describes the whole earth. You say, why? Well, what is the whole earth but the Christian's battlefield? Right? The whole earth is our battleground. And so that is what Armageddon symbolizes. And we know that Armageddon isn't a, a literal place for a few reasons. One being that this place, Megiddo, isn't actually on a mountain anyway. It sits on a plain. Also, in the Old Testament Scriptures, where are we told that the last battle is going to happen? Near Jerusalem. Not in Megiddo. You know, one example of that is Zechariah chapter 12, verse 3. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all peoples. All who lift it up will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. And so we ask that, we have to ask ourselves then, why Armageddon? Right? Why Armageddon? Well, I think it's, it's easy when we understand that Megiddo in the Old Testament was a place in which many battles took place. And so the Old Testament battlefield is, is used as a symbol for the eschatological battlefield, where God will overthrow His every enemy, the devil, right? the, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, and He will come with all of the saints who will be draped in the righteous robes of Christ. This leads us then to our third and our final point that we want to look at this morning which we will call cosmic renewal. Cosmic renewal. Please look with me starting at verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out from the temple, from the throne saying, It is done! And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Now, immediately, there ought to be a few things that just jump off the page to us. I think the first thing that ought to jump out at us is, is that voice that comes out from the temple. What does that voice say? It is done. Something that has been said in John 19.30 sounds very familiar, doesn't it? When, when Christ on the cross said what? It is finished. And what did Jesus mean by it is finished? It means the work of redemption has been accomplished. And so now that, that voice, Christ crying out from heaven now, it is done, 
signifies that the salvation that Christ has accomplished has now fully come to pass at the consummation of all things when Christ returns. The salvation He merited is complete. And as saints, we receive the, the fullness of all of the benefits and blessings now that we have through faith in Christ. Next, we ought to easily identify that the seventh bowl is dealing with the final judgment. Why so? Well, look at verse 18 once more. What happens there? Flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. If you remember from the the seven seals and the seven trumpets, how do they end? The exact same way. With the complete and total destruction of all things. And that too we see here with the seventh bowl. That is describing that great and final day of judgment. What is being described actually, brothers and sisters, is the same thing described in Revelation 20. If you'd like to, flip over there with me. What we're reading in our text here is what we read in Revelation 20, verses 9 and 10. There we are told, And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night for ever and ever. What we also need to see is that these verses 7 to 21 not only describe to us then the final judgment, but they also describe to us the destruction of the entire cosmos. Right? That's what we see here as well. And this is seen in the effect that this earthquake has. Right? What is that effect that we're told in verse 18? It's a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great, we're told, was this earthquake. Right? Not only did this great earthquake come upon the earth, but what happened? The, the great city Babylon is split. Right? The, the cities of the nations fall. They drain the, 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 the cup of wine and experience the, the fury of God's wrath. What else are we told? Every island floods away. All the mountains are obliterated by God. Even hundred pound hailstones fall from the earth and crush man. You say, is this literally going to take place in this manner? You say, no. But what this language does for us is that it amplifies the finality of the judgment that is being described. That is what this language does. So that things that seem permanent to us, like massive mountains, will be obliterated by God. Everything that has been tainted by sin will be swept away to destruction. Now there is a reason though why I call this third point cosmic renewal. There's a reason I call the third point cosmic renewal. And that's because of what I want us to understand, brothers and sisters, is when God and Jesus Christ returns to destroy the earth. He is not going to annihilate this earth. Right? He is not going to wipe out this earth and create a whole new heavens and a new earth. But rather, what we need to see is that God will purge away the corruption of the old order of things. And this earth and this heavens will be renewed and glorified in the new age that Christ brings in. Right? The world 
according to its substance, will continue. But what we need to see is that according to the characteristics, right, concerning the characteristics of the world, those things will be totally, utterly, and radically changed and transformed. And I think there are many reasons for believing this. And I'll, I'll name just a couple for us. First, think about Romans chapter 8. What does Paul tell us about creation there? He says, creation itself groans in earnest expectation for Christ's return. Why would creation groan in earnest expectation for His return if it was just going to be annihilated, obliterated, and be no more? No, we need to see it groans because creation longs to be restored. Creation longs to be delivered from sin as well. Right? Didn't sin, the, the fall of, of Adam, didn't affect the ground as well? Didn't affect all of God's creation? And so it, it groans, it longs to be delivered. I mean, think about that Romans 8 text. Not only there does it speak about creation groaning, it speaks about God's people groaning as well in that very same text. And yet, brothers and sisters, we don't believe when God returns, we're going to be annihilated, do we? And that He's going to create some whole new person that we weren't before. No, but rather, why do we groan? We groan for our Savior to return. And what is He going to do? So that He will purge us of all sin. right? So that He will perfect us after the image of Christ. That He will grant to us perfect knowledge and righteousness and holiness. That, brothers and sisters, is what is going to be done. I mean, even think about the language that we use now as new believers. We are what? A new creation. Does that mean that we had to be destroyed? Obliterated? Annihilated? And then remade? No, that's not what it means. We needed to be purged of sin. We needed to be refined and renewed by our Savior. Even that language in Timothy of the heavens and earth dissolving by fire, I think that communicates the same thing I'm trying to say. Because Peter will likewise say in the very same book that you will be tested by fiery trials. And what does that mean? What does fiery trials do for you? It refines you, doesn't it? It reforms you. It doesn't destroy you. And thus, brothers and sisters, it will be the same way with God's original creation. Right? Through fire it will be restored. Through fire it will be renewed to God's original intention just like it shall be with man. And as we think about those things, as we think about that reality, it ought to cause every single one of us to anticipate the return of Christ with great joy and gladness. And the Scriptures are replete telling us with exhortations to do that very thing. In James chapter 5, verse 8, Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Luke 21, 28, Straighten up, raise up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Sadly though, brothers and sisters, there are too few of us who actually long and wait an eager expectation for this day. Too few of us. But why? Why? I mean, on that day, do you not know what is going to happen? On that day, 
Christ will be glorified. Your Savior will be glorified before all things. All men, angels, and the devil alike. Right On that day, brothers and sisters, we shall be delivered from all of our misery. Right On that very day, you will be received into the marriage feast of the Lamb. On that day when Christ returns, it will be a day of your crowning. Right? On that day, it will be the day that good and evil are separated forever. On that day, do you not know that Christ shall come and confess His love for you before the world? On that day, brothers and sisters, the world will know that you are His and He is yours and that He died for your sins. On that day, you shall receive as an heir your reward of eternal life. We rejoice too little over these things. Why is that? It's because of a lack of love for Christ. That's what it is. A lack of love for Christ that each and every one of us have. It's a, it's a lack of faith also. And trusting in the promises of God that He will do the very thing that He has promised to do. It's a carelessness for eternal things. Because so many of us love this world far too much. And so, brothers and sisters, may it be a call for all of us to repent. Right? To repent of our lack of joy for the age to come. Let us, let us repent for the lack of concern for the glory of Christ. And then let us turn by faith to our Savior. Let us look to Him and be thankful that it is He who has adorned us in His wedding garments. And let, then let us be obedient to His commands. And let us be watchful over our souls. And let us be prayerful that He will strengthen us every day of our lives so that when He returns, we shall not be found naked and exposed, but rather clothed and awake. Ready and wanting to meet the Lord when He comes. On the great day the Lord God Almighty. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, for it is right and true and faithful. Uh, we pray, Father, that You would help to increase our faith in our Savior and in the promises that You give to us in Your Word. We ask, Lord, that You would help us to long for uh, the return of Christ Help us to long for eternal things more than we do temporal things. Help us to long for the glory of Christ and for our deliverance where we will stand before our Savior in glory and see our Beloved face to face as He is. Father, we come before You asking all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.